0: Could you pronounce your name correctly for me?
1: David Sprigs.
0: So you're in Vancouver.
1: Yes, I'm in I'm Vancouver.
0: One of the first things I always ask people is like a little bit about their background. So childhood, were your parents creative? Was it some schooling that brought you into it? Like how did you even get to the point of being creative?
1: That's quite a big question. Actually, my parents have really been quite encouraging to me over the years. Even my dad helps me out every day at the studio. So back when I was young, I remember my mom teaching me linear perspective. Quite at a young age, I think I might have been four. (laughs) But they've always been encouraging. And I think that's one of the reasons I felt like I could become an artist. Good to have good parents.
0: What did they do? Did, were they like linear perspective? I don't remember learning that until like high school.
1: I remember my mom just drawing a straight line, a horizon line, and you know just drawing some train tracks going into the distance. Which you know it seems quite simple, but I think it was. I mean, thinking about perspective is one of the things I think about now with my work.
0: Okay, well, let's just jump right into that then. So your work, now, keep in mind, I have not personally seen it in real life. So give me a little bit of a sort of a technical standpoint of what I'm seeing. I mean, I've looked at, read the stuff like, uh, it seems like sheets of plastic of some sort with a metal structure, and then of course, creative lighting.
1: Each artwork's quite different. Sometimes I've used plexiglass, sometimes transparent film, sometimes glass. Each project, I choose the material to whatever I think would be best for the subject matter. What I've done is I've taken like a transparent plane and uh, either drawn or painted on the surface and then layered it with another sheet behind, spaced apart and to, you know, as many layers deep as I want to kind of create the sense of sort of like holographic like form in space
0: okay wait just to be clear because when i saw this work don't take this personally i apologize if you take offense to this i assumed it was somehow digitally created in some way like that you had designed it in a computer and you sort of like either printed it on a inkjet printer i don't even know what you could do how you could do that but like the that somehow basically the design and layout was done in computers, but you're saying you hand do all of these?
1: Yeah, almost every single one. So yeah, on my wall at the studio, it's very much a painting process. I often use you know spray paint to do many of the works to give it that kind of form without boundaries. The image kind of bleeds into the sheet behind, so that when you're looking simultaneously at all these sheets, it kind of looks like one form rather than looking at you know layers of images. Sometimes I have used that digital methods to reach certain goals to kind of help me figure out the process of what would go on to each sheet. But usually this is like a very simple thing. And then I would just basically afterwards, like, you know, use my artistic ability to just kind of make up the rest of the image.
0: All right. That's quite an ability. How long do these, because some of these things have been, really big so like on average like how long
1: does it take you to produce these it depends I'd say anywhere between like a month and six seven months this is an artwork I made called stratochrome which took me probably about six months there's large green one that's almost 55 foot wide it's quite an enormous thing if you had actually to take the surface area of all those sheets side by side I think you could wrap a quite a significant building around surface area so if you think of it as a painting it's you know it's probably one of the largest paintings in the world
0: okay taking a step back how did you even come to this process because like i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna make this very personal to me when i was in school i remember doing ideas like this with uh, lithographic film in the dark room where we would take multiple images and then we constructed little boxes that we basically made layers to try and give it some sense of three-dimensionality like so how did you come to it and then sort of how did you make it so it's your your thing your style?
1: Well I've come more from a painting background you know I used to like to you know do kind of more traditional like oil painting. I was always inspired by the old masters, and, you know, my work had a sense of tradition to it. At one point, I thought, like, how can painting become something completely different? Like, you know, how can you take paint off the surface, like, into space? I'd done a lot of sculpture previously, too, even stone sculpture. I thought it would be really amazing to, you know, somehow capture paint in space, and then when i was a teenager i'd made a lot of prints which were done with four color separation process you know cyan yellow magenta black and to see these different transparencies i could see you know the image is created with layers every image we see is actually layered whether it's on the screen or or printed and we see all those layers simultaneously at one and i thought it'd be interesting. To pull that kind of image apart and it just kind of started to make sense to use it as a painting process, you know, using transparencies to kind of capture that paint on the surface, give it form.
0: Now, again, I apologize if this comes off as offensive, but I don't mean it offensively, I promise. I've had many conversations these days with artists and curators and gallerists and talking about like the idea of sort of having a style. So like you have this very distinct style like if I ever see a large scale layered with beautiful creative lighting I'm like that's a David Spriggs. It's got to be or the guy's copying David Spriggs. So is that to your benefit? Like do you ever get bored with it? Do you ever be like god, I really just want to paint a canvas?
1: Every day. <laughs> no, actually, actually, I think the, there's an enormous potential in layering as a technique. I think, you know, when I see painting, as there's a million ways to paint, and we can see that by the phenomenal painters out there. But how do you set yourself separate from them? And how do you, you know, in photography too, like how do you make a photo that's really different that people can see and so i think it's kind of important to in a sense have a bit of a style and even if you deviate a little bit artwork to artwork from that style i think it's it helps as an artist to kind of just stand out and you know we we see so many images and so there's just so much media now it's blinding and I think everyone that has a phone now, you know, posts things online. And so I think images are less and less valued. Imagine back in like Renaissance times, you know, you go to the nearest church where most of the paintings would be, and people would probably spend as much time with these paintings as we would spend with a movie now. That kind of captivation, that kind of, focus that we would have at one time on images, I think is completely gone. I think people don't even look at an image for more than a second now. I I remember people walking through the Louvre, walking by the most important paintings in history without stopping. And I I think it's sad that that happens. And I think actually that's one of the reasons now that I make work that requires time. You know, you cannot just experience my work in a second unless you see it online. It's something that requires the viewer to kind of spend the time to actually walk around it because it's that kind of walking around the work that gives the form to it. You know, otherwise it's just images that's it's flat. But through walking around you, you know, you get all these different perspectives that kind of create create an image.
0: I agree with what you're saying. And I'm sure COVID and all the other travel restrictions has made it a bit difficult for exhibitions of things that need to be experienced. However, your images, also like your documentation of your work, so on your website, social media, all these different places, it is the most beautiful clickbait. Like, I mean, every time I see an image that's yours, I'm like, "Ooh, that's that. That's stunning!" Like, because not only do you like create this very theatrical thing, but you light it beautifully, you photograph it beautifully. It's like you really create this beautiful social media imagery.
1: Well, thank you. I, I mean, I think documentation of any is really important. I think that's something I did actually learn at school. You know, I do actually like to take a lot of photos. I think over the years, I've become better at documenting my work. And I think even when I'm installing an artwork now, I'm really aware of, you know, social media being the way that most people experience the work. So I do want that if someone walks into to see one of my artworks and takes a picture, it's going to also look good in social media. So I have to pay attention to not just my artwork, but what's behind it, what might be reflected, or, you know, it's it's a lot of things to consider. And it actually, in, in a way, it makes it me more aware and of, of making an artwork that really functions best for the viewer in a way. So honestly, actually, to see my works in person really is so much better than seeing it in social media. It's like, I feel kind of almost frustrated that people experience my work through through social media or just through my website, but it's a compromise. Regarding taking pictures of my work, I always like to try and have a viewer in the image to kind of situate the person, to give you the sense of the scale, to give you the sense of what it might be like to stand in front of one of the works.
0: Well, one of the things that I wonder about your works, because everything I've seen of your works is colossal. So how do you make a living doing that?
1: Basically invest everything I make back into my work.
0: Okay, no, no, take a step back. So the the works are huge. So I mean, it's not like somebody with an apartment is going to buy one of these. Like, so your your market is a very niche market because it's going to be an institution or it's going to be somebody with a massive collection or somebody that can store this thing somewhere. I mean, so like you've got a. a, a I'm I'm assuming people can buy them, but then or are you commissioned to do them? So basically, are you paid in advance to produce the things? Then it, then it sort of just goes into a collection or whatever. Like, so how does that sort of happen?
1: Well, usually I try and think about what I want to make. You know, I have ideas for lots of artworks that I want to make in the future. And most of the time, I don't really want to wait for someone to just say, here's some money and make it. So I usually just make it. I find the materials and just do it and then a lot of the exhibitions I've had are non-profit you know I might make something huge but it's quite often just self-funded you know I do obviously sell my work too which allows me to do different things sometimes I receive grants from the government which allow me to do different things but I don't usually want finances to restrict me you know because I think if you wait for something your whole life you'll never do anything and you don't always need a lot of money to make things you can do some amazing stuff with just a single can of paint and a wall it's just what you decide to do with that that time i think time is more valuable in a way
0: i agree but i i'm always sort of riding that balance of like how much money do you put into something And how much money do you have to spend on something? Because it's tough because I'm a little bit of a material snob. And I can tell you, you are, even though you're acting like you're not, you you have a little bit of material because like you have chosen very particular materials to work with. And you can't really achieve this goal with just any transparent material. So like it does have a good cost, hard cost to it that you can't avoid
1: it's different like if i do receive some sort of financing you know whether it's from a sale or commission or like i mentioned from the some some, a government grant it it would allow me to do a bigger piece i do have some material that i saved from previous projects and then sometimes you know let's say i just had ten dollars i might just decide to use that ten dollars to buy You know, just some paper, a sketchbook, and I think you can still do some interesting things. I've always tried to maximize what I could do for each project with the finances I have and the time and the space. I really try my best to, you know, do as epic a project as possible.
0: Okay, and I love that about you. However... On your website, there are only epic projects. So, 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 do you do other things that people that are available for people like at different price points, kind of things, or do you only do the large-scale epic pieces?
1: Oh, I do smaller pieces too. What's on my website is just some of my favorite works. You know, I have made different artworks before. Some commissioned projects based on some of my artworks so are there in some private collections. I think it's just a matter of the time to do each thing and what I want to do as well.
0: Indeed. Okay. So as I said, I have not personally experienced your work in real life. Is there anything additional? So there's the sculpture itself. There's a beautiful light design that is somehow sort of integral to the piece as well. Is it sound, scent, any other sort of uh, senses involved in it?
1: No, I usually don't like to have sound. I think for me, the best artworks are really like you strip it of everything that's not needed to be there. For me, I just like the stillness of it. I, th- I think it's the silence. I mentioned the bombardment of media we receive now. It's the same with sound. It's noisy. I think people want to f- have that kind of time to really just kind of mute the rest of the, the sounds of the world and just like focus on what they're looking at. And so I usually don't have sounds. I thought about it, but I think too many installation artists at the moment use kind of a droney kind of sound, which I find a little bit frustrating. And that's all I can hear. So I don't really want music because I feel like that's something extra. So I've just kind of just, just focused on just the, the basics of what's required.
0: Well, I could imagine like some of if it's on like mylar or something that moves that like maybe like a little wind in the space, just so there's a little motion in it, kind of thing.
1: Yeah, there actually, already it is—a little bit of motion. Just people walking around the work, just the that kind of subtle effect, and there's a little bit of reflection. It gives a nice kind of little glimmer, and just that kind of slight vibration of the imagery is quite nice too.
0: All right, so you're you making these monumental works. How do you store all these? Are they or are they all sold, or do you have like a storage bin, like a container holding all this stuff?
1: Some of them are sold, and then other ones. Actually, the large scale installations, I can roll all the film together, so it it's collapsed significantly to a sw- much much smaller space. Storage is always an issue, though. I think it's for any sculptor out there, they they understand the complications of it.
0: Indeed, yes. I mean, I'm thinking, like you said, some of these pieces are glass as well. Like, what about transportation and all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, that's definitely an issue, especially for the larger pieces. Usually I don't like to send things unless I absolutely have to. But the large pieces, like the installations, which are on the transparent film travel really quite easily so I'm not worried about that just the general art shippers fine
0: you're assuming we all can just afford art shippers but that's fine (laughs) they're they're not cheap I've used them they're lovely they're amazing they do a great job but boy they're expensive
1: yeah but usually if I'm sending things to somewhere it's usually the gallery or the museum that would foot the bill for shipping so I don't have to think about that
0: I understand that as usual per people who have museum and and gallery exhibitions that's good. (laughs) So speaking of that, so you've had you have and have had gallery representation. I'm always fascinated because like in my career, I've been doing this for over twenty years now. And I'm and I've only had like one gallery and it was kind of a joke. So like I'm not even gonna equate that. So like how did gallery representation come about? And then do you have any like good stories, bad stories about sort of the experience of being a, a gallery artist?
1: I've got good and bad stories. <laughs> Must gotta be hesitant and careful what I say. It's it's really difficult to talk about galleries. You know, I've been screwed over by some galleries, which I think artists have to be careful about. It's. I think being an artist is kind of a risky profession because it's like you quite willingly, you know, want to show places, but especially as a young artist, you've got to be quite careful. It's very easy to be taken advantage of, and so it's better to sometimes not exhibit somewhere than to jump into something.
0: Okay, could you be more specific on your screwed over <laughs> stories? Because well, because a lot of people. A lot of young artists and even, you know, just general naive mid-career artists such as myself might be like, oh, a, a gallery wants to represent me? Amazing. And just sign it like, great. I want to be able to say I'm a gallery represented artist. Or if you want to buy my work, go to this gallery. Like it's a great thing to be able to say as an artist.
1: I think one thing that no one ever talks about, which is something that needs to be mentioned, is that as an artist, you've got to make sure that you get money up front for something. If it's a commission, you got to ask for your your fifty percent or whatever your commission rate is, because sometimes people don't pay, and you know it's not not good. It can really put some financial strain on you, and also some galleries don't pay either, so you have to be also careful there.
0: Just to be clear, I've worked in art galleries. I'm fully aware of the issues of not paying artists and having them calling constantly for the gallery owner, like, hey, is the owner? I'm like, no. And like the gallery owner's sitting right there, like, don't, don't, don't. I don't want to talk to them, kind of thing, you know. (laughs) So. I'm fully aware that that does happen and it's very unfortunate but I mean to a certain extent that happens in every business like I've also worked at warehouses that don't pay their suppliers like so like you know it's not unique to the arts but it does put more of a financial strain because we're for lack of a better word we're like small businesses and so like every penny counts to us.
1: Yeah and regarding like projects often I've been, you know, asked like, what, what would I do for, for some place? And it's amazing how much information people want. And after you've sent like hundreds of emails and you've not been paid for anything up to that point, it's, you know, you start to realize like, and I think it's a kind of a bit of a learning curve to, to know that you need to be, before you do anything, get paid for something. And it, a project's much, much more likely to happen if someone's already put down some finances so that they're kind of locked in and invested some way before commencing. And, you know, I've done negotiations and talked about a lot lot of different large-scale projects for places which have all fallen through, unfortunately. And some of them, you know, I've not made a penny on them. I may have worked for three, four months on for doing this. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely... That's something I would, if I was going to offer advice to a young artist, I would suggest to be careful.
0: I'll, I'll ask you for advice at the end also. But <laughs> what I mean, but it's hard because a lot of the creative field is. Trying things, having faith, being being willing to, like you said, like do some nonprofit exhibitions, things like this to sort of build your CV, get a better name, maybe meet some people because like you do an exhibition at a nonprofit place because the curator is somebody who then might open some doors for you somewhere else or you know, things along this line. So like we as artists sadly end up doing a lot of not like free work, but basically we put a lot of effort upfront for a hope and a prayer that things will work out in the long run?
1: I think, especially being a younger artist, I think that's the hardest period of time from graduating from school and trying to kind of make your mark. That you actually do have to exhibit for free. You've got to make an investment and that investment's in yourself. And even as later in life, you know, it's like you have to kind of find this balance between spending a lot of time doing the social networking or everything else that goes into being an artist and then actually making art so in my mind i've actually divided is the the art market the whole aspect of selling and dealing with galleries or just dealing with people in general the kind of the the profession of it and then there's art that's the, the thing that keeps me going and I think keeps a lot of artists going is just thinking about art you know ideas the discussion around art and so I have to separate these two in my head just to stay sane because if you think of art like as a profession as as just like this all-encompassing art market I think it can be quite discouraging
0: I like I'm in the habit I keep my professional uh, studio as far as production of art very separate from my business of running the arts. Like I literally have them in different buildings like so that like, they don't even overlap because I don't want to the stress of like social media or taxes or shipping or anything to be interfering with the production of being creative.
1: We see so many things on Instagram now. I think as an artist, you, you know, you could spend half a year on one image. Or well, let's say if you're a painter, if you spent half a year on a painting and you know that you're only going to get like not even a full second from people, is it really worth spending half a year on it? And that's when you have to separate that in your mind from doing art. Because if you kind of go think about social media and the Whole profession of art, you're never going to make any art because it's not really worth that time unless, you know, there's that engagement in thinking of art.
0: Well, I run into this every now and then because people say, like, I've had collectors on the podcast and they keep saying, I really love seeing the in the studio behind the scene videos of the making of the art, not just like finished pieces. And I'm like, yeah, but when I'm in my studio, I screw up on so many things and it places a mess. Like, I don't want you judging me for like the way I do my shit. I just want you to judge me off of my finished works that, I, that, that, that worked, the, the successful ones, because of course I have a lot of things that fail. So like a lot of tests and a lot of like, oh shit, I just overworked this thing or whatever. But it seems like because of social media, like you said, there's this speed that they want things, they want new things on the content every day or every week. And some of us just aren't that productive.
1: Well, I think that what social media has done to art is made art more of an entertainment. You know, 20 years ago, I think the art world was less large. People that have really just, like, studied art or, you know, are somehow in the art world somehow. It's not the general population, but I think the general population has become part of the art world now. And so we're seeing how... You know, popular votes, whether it's the number of Instagram likes or followers, influencing how much something's worth. Artists now that might have like 150,000 followers might be regarded as better artists than an artist that might be profoundly amazing and that uh, only has 300 followers. It's kind of like, almost like attaching a dollar value to something and people are deciding through the dollar value that something's better. So I think you've, we're finding like a change in the art world because of this kind of influx of just basically everyone in, into it.
0: Oh, I think it's dumbing down the the general overall quality of work because it's basically it's gone to uh, you know art by committee more or less because it's just said like, hey, everybody – Is this good or bad? And it's just like, okay, whoever gets the most hand raises wins, you know, the most likes. That's the theoretical winner. But that's not how art should be made. And personally, like, I'm really snobby about it. Like, I don't think it is the right way for it to be. Don't get me wrong. I think that the existing industry around the art market is also slightly broken in many ways. you know, with the gatekeepers of the curators and all this kind of jazz, like uh, that has its own set of problems also. But I think that social media has just sort of basically added another problem to the entire industry. I think this
1: over the years, you know, the, the white pedestal with an artwork on top or the, you know, the museum space, you know, the picture with a the frame, for example, is an indication of that something that artwork's worth something and it should be looked at. So that pedestal that the artwork created for itself of of culture I think is kind of being eroded quite quickly. We're seeing art becoming no more valued than some other things now and no more discussed than something else. And so I think If anything, it's that 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 breakdown of prestige that kind of allows that kind of extended critical thinking on something that's that's what's being eroded.
0: Well, it's also becoming a bit of cult of personality as well, like where these these artists and people on Instagram and social medias are brands more than they are, you know, so they're they're almost lifestyles of artists than artists themselves.
1: Like, if we look at what's the most popular artist today, let's say someone like Ai Weiwei, who's a brilliant artist, you know, I don't think anyone could really critique him. I'm sure there's people could critique him, but let me back up there. He kind of fits, I think, what the art world's really looking for is kind of, you know, he has this perfect backstory, you know, someone that's fought for human rights. He makes he works that are both aesthetic and... Grand and he just kind of what's happened with him. It's almost like people, the, the countries have used him politically too, as you know, a porn. But he, he, he kind of represents this idea of revolution and you know, art being able to do something in the world. And I think every artist kind of wants that you know, that art to actually profoundly impact the world somehow. And you know, they look to Ai Weiwei, I think, a lot because you know he's managed to kind of do that in a way and the art world just loves it and so that kind of whole package is really like i don't know how to say it. like it's helped him as an artist but it's i think that's what the art world wants now they kind of the, this full package personality story it's not just about the art anymore it's it's about the person as well
0: yeah, I mean, it's always been like that. There's always been the allure of collectors. Like you hear about like the Peggy Guggenheims and all these people going to studio visits and being enamored with the artists. I mean, it's always the artist has always played into the quality, you know, the appreciation of the art. But I feel like it's become almost more important to be a brand or a, a lifestyle or a whatever than necessarily the quality of the art because there's a lot of, quote unquote, artists that have hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. And I think that their art is not necessarily really that amazing, but their ability to use social media is spectacular.
1: Well, we've just recently seen with these NFTs, like it just completely disrupt the art world. I'm sure that the whole industry is kind of a bit scared by it actually, because you have these artists which really are not very good, a lot of them, but they suddenly are able to capitalize on this getting same dollar value as some of the biggest, most well-known artists. Like just recently, I believe was a painting by Van Gogh that got sold at auction for I believe like 13 million. But then we we see an artist like Beeple who's got a sale at 69 million. So we have a modern day artist that's way outperformed Van Gogh in terms of a sale. And it it's kind of like makes you think, okay, there's something kind of not right happening here. And I think this is when money is changing art history. I'm sure that people will be probably be part of art history now because as soon as they talk about NFTs, that they're going to mention people, and so he's he's kind of secured this like little position, which is really more about capitalism and like capital deciding what what goes in art history than the art itself.
0: I personally like I've looked into NFTs because I thought about like making some obviously after I saw somebody sell one for sixty nine million dollars. But to a certain extent, I feel like, I, yeah, I don't, I still don't feel comfortable producing them myself, A. But secondly, I feel like they're just a another form of a branding thing, another form of a Kickstarter, because it's all about being popular, basically. Like the more popular you are, the more the value of your thing is. And like popularity is because it's a digital thing online. It's all about online popularity, which of course I'm really bad at. So, You know, to me, it's just like another thing for me to be bad at. Like, and and beside the fact, of course, that I want to be spending more time making art rather than like publicizing my stuff through NFT websites or whatever else kind of thing like this. I don't even know how to do it. I don't understand it yet, but I'm looking into it, but I'm not, but I'm also a little dubious of it. I feel like there's probably some sort of shady, like, money laundering thing going on there i don't know totally my opinion i have no proof of that so you know that's don't quote me on that
1: (laughs) (laughs) i think this influx of money into it that reminds me of the like dot-com bubble i think people are just excited about it because it's this idea that you know you can make a lot of money without really having to do anything I mean, we'll see how it plays out. It's definitely kind of wild west at the moment.
0: Let's change topics completely. I have a question for you because you mentioned that you have a a child. This is why we scheduled our, our conversation at this time. Did having a child change your artistic practice, your artistic goals? Did it in any way influence you or change your perspective on your entire practice of being an artist?
1: I think it made me realize that art is not everything. I think being an artist is completely consuming, especially if you're a serious artist, you know, you think about it. It's not like you can turn off when you go home. You go to bed thinking about it, you wake up, and it actually becomes kind of of an anxiety that never goes away. And I think a lot of artists out there would agree that you never feel like you can make the best artwork. And so you keep making something new. I think uh, having a child has made me realize that there's a lot more to the world than just, you know, focusing on this. I think it also makes me realize just try and find more balance in my life. And regarding like making my work, I don't think it's really changed what type of things I want to do or make. It just makes me aware there's a lot more. In my little bubble in my head
0: <laughs> well I ask because like you know there's there are certain times in your in, you, in your own life when you're like I want to have a book produced of my work or I want to have a exhibition at the Guggenheim or like you have these sort of high aspirational goals of your career kind of thing and I hear a lot where like when people have children that the suddenly the shift is, Less, let's say, about those lofty goals, and they sort of shift a little bit more to I want to be able to provide for my children.
1: Well, that's, I mean, for any parent, you've got to provide. You know, I I can't invest all my money into just my work anymore. But at the same time, I must admit, I think having my daughter, she's since having my daughter, I think my career has actually got better, not worse. So I feel like thinking about other things other than art actually been really good for me. Anyway, she's been in such a positive influence on me. And it also makes me want to like really achieve something to show her so she could be proud of me.
0: Oh no, I get the sense, don't get me wrong here, let me give you a little back on this. I don't currently have any children, but I'm planning on having children in the next couple of years. And I have thought about and talked to a lot of different artists about having children and stuff. And I get the sense that Having children while sp- helping you find balance and maybe splitting your focus so you're not like a hundred percent on art and you know you have no other side interest kind of things. That, but in the long run, I feel like it it creates a balance that actually becomes. It may not be beneficial a hundred percent of the time, but sort of over the long term, it actually becomes more beneficial to you because. There's that balance of I want to make sure to be pr- do something to be make them proud of me. I want to be able to you know create create some legacy that they can then potentially you know have money from or whatever it is kind of thing that that drives you that that somehow that that having those ch- having a child or children ends up being beneficial.
1: Well, exactly, and also that it when you're at the studio working, you realize you've only got a limited time to do something. So rather than just do this or that, you're actually working.
0: Yeah, you dick around in the studio less because you have less time to play around and dick around in the studio. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You talked about grants. You talked about getting commissions and all this kind of stuff. One of the parts of that that I am still trying to figure out the trick of is how to write these things because like making an amazingly stunning, effective, evocative piece of art is one thing, but then being able to write eloquently about it is also is to me, its own art form in and of itself. So like, how do you write your own statements and all this kind of stuff? Or do you like work with a writer or a
1: curator? Sometimes I write my own things and then I get people to reword it. I often get my wife to reword things for me. But then I have had different people write different things about my work. And, you know, I do come back to those particular texts. And I find it nice to actually have, you know, someone that's especially an intellectual say what you were thinking in words that seem to fit. I think artwork shouldn't need texts. I think the best artwork, if we think of art as a form of communication, if you can't communicate your idea with the artwork and you need to have a book to go with it, then it's not really functioning the way it should do. But it is nice when the text maybe kind of highlights things that are there in the work that you, as an artist, maybe couldn't find the words
0: I get it. I'm on your side. I wish wish we as creators could just create and then basically there was another profession of people who write about it. I know they're called art critics and curators, (laughs) but I wish that they would – I wish I guess that they were more affordable or that it was appropriate for them to write my text that I could then use for a application to whatever thing. But unfortunately, they don't generally want you to have a curator or whoever write your text for you. They want you to write it yourself because I find that stuff really tedious and difficult.
1: Yeah, I find it really, really hard to write about my work. You know, it's, it might be a project I've been thinking about for six months, and I have an encyclopedia of wealth of thinking that goes into it. But then I can't even get out one sentence to describe the work, just the literal, like what what do we see? But it would be nice, yes, to have someone that could always do that part for you
0: like a writing partner. That's what I want. I want a writing partner who will do all of my texts for me, like as a ghost writer, and I can say it's my writing, but they do all the work of that.
1: I think everyone would like that. <laughs> Someone to write your emails as well.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm fine with emails. I just make them really, really short. <laughs> well, but okay, so when you're writing, because so you've done... You've been in biennials. Okay, so like, how were you invited into biennials or did you do proposals to get into those? Like, how does that all work?
1: The first biennial I was in was the Charger Biennial. They had a call for applications. And this is at a time not long after I'd done some of my. Actually, it was 10 years after I did my first layered artwork. So I'd submitted, I wanted to do a large scale installation, and it seemed like. An appropriate place to do it, and so yeah, I was given some funding to, to to do that, and it was a bit of an experiment because it was my first large scale installation. But then that you know that was actually Access of Power, the artwork Access of Power, and that then led to other opportunities. And since then, most of my exhibitions have been through invitation. I've been invited to go to Japan this year for the Okinoto. Triennial and Suzu for doing a large-scale installation. So I think that all came about through this first installation. It was a good opportunity.
0: So let me get this straight. There was just an open call. You wrote a proposal. You got accepted. That's how you got into that biennial?
1: The first one, yeah. Yeah, Ah,
0: fuck. All right. (laughs) I know Sharjah. I actually used to live in Abu Dhabi. So.
1: Oh, really?
0: Wow. Yeah. Sharjah is an interesting place. Not really my cup of tea, but an interesting place.
1: Hmm. I enjoyed my time there. It was, I got, got to meet some interesting people.
0: The The United Arab Emirates is amazing to visit for short periods of time. <laughs> yeah. Living there, working for the government, totally different. Whole bag of worms.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow.
0: I'm not going to say anything. I still think that they're sort of watching me even still today, even though, but yeah. I, that's my own my own neuroses so all right so the next the other thing that like so i was looking through your works and i was sort of thinking how do you come up with these ideas because okay so bear with me i have like a real not just a vague question like how do you come up with your ideas your works are reasonably abstract they're not very abstract i mean they do have some you know, quantifiable thing, but they're reasonably abstract. So, like, why do you choose a particular thing to abstract or form of abstraction as your sort of most appropriate way to express
1: this idea? Each work's quite different. If you notice, some of them are figurative, some of them are quite abstract. Perhaps the artwork vision is quite an abstract piece but then at the same time, it looks like things that we might know. People say maybe it's like an explosion or like the iris of an eye. I think the interesting thing with my work is because of this slight balance between abstraction and because it exists as a three-dimensional form, we kind of think it's something real. And in terms of coming up with the idea, for vision, I was thinking about perception. I was thinking about... A form, like how we experience a form, we know it from different angles, a bit like the cubist idea of like, you know, we see a form from different angles and our minds kind of piece it all together as one thing. That's a Gestaltian theory. So for vision, I wanted to have different marks that kind of came together to create form. So you have this, these kind of like almost like lines of perception, these like force lines. They're kind of are coming together and it creates this kind of like half sphere, which also becomes more, a bit like the eye itself, and vision being more of a it's kind of an act, like a perception, rather than it feels like it's it's not passive. And so I like to kind of bring all these different elements together. Vision's really just like a half sphere. It's really a very, very simple form, really. But you get the sense of form, even though you have all these different elements kind of coming together. And because of the, the lines that are kind of coming together, it kind of brings you into it constantly. And so as a viewer, you're kind of drawn into it. Just like that play on different things. And then other artworks. You know, let's say gravity, which is a very similar kind of piece. I just kind of spiraled the, the the form. You still have a sense of form, and so when we think of everything, everything kind of comes together because of gravity. And so it kind of it's a kind of keeping with that idea.
0: Okay, sorry, I'm sort of laughing under my breath here. You you just described your work as yeah, I just kind of. Turn the form like literally like that's how you come up here like hey, i'm just gonna shift the shape a little bit like that's it that's how you do it
1: <laughs> <laughs> i actually do agonize about this like every night you know all my waking time i think about the next artwork and i like i mentioned before i try and reduce it down to its absolute simplicity so it's something like gravity how would you Represents it you know we might think of something like galaxies or but this idea of kind of coming together
0: okay okay but wait a minute so like no you because you just sort of said something so you had the plan about trying to represent gravity then you tried to figure out how to visually represent it so you come up with sort of things you desire to represent and then figure out what the appropriate way to represent it so it's not so it's function so i guess function over form instead of form over function
1: yes it depends on the artwork actually sometimes i think about what i'd like to make and then like try and think of concept the concept that would fit to it and then i might tweak the initial artwork one of the recurring themes of all my many of my works is the idea of power and there's lots of ways to think about power it's it's you know you can think of it like it's state power. You could think of power and like something being powerful, like as an image, or you could think of like it's military power or power of nature. There's all these different ways, like as forces. So you actually start to see throughout my work kind of different representations of power. So regital, which is actually represents. Armored police officer on horseback. I thought it was, would be an interesting way to represent contemporary state power, but referring to the history of equestrian statues of the past, usually it had been emperors or kings, and usually the, there'd be enormous, enormous wealth of a city that would go into producing these equestrian statues. It was an absolute show of power the artwork was used to represent power. And so how would you represent modern state power? You know, we don't usually have a single person as the kind of the the image of power. But I think people still relate to artworks from the past. So the police officer on horseback is a same type of imagery or same, same type of thing that we see, for riot control, and, and they only use these horses still in our times to because it, there's a physical reaction to it. So I wanted someone, when people see my artwork, to have that kind of physical reaction to just re- really feel dwarfed by this, this form. I made it thermal imaging kind of colors, you know, the red being this kind of very warm color, and then the blue being the cool colors. And so it has a very kind of contemporary coloring to it. But at the same time, you have this form that's like dematerializes when you go to the side. It kind of just breaks apart. You know, the, the riot guard is like kind of faceless. It's, it's just a representation of power.
0: Well, you say that, and so it starts to make me think about the scale of your work also, because, like, when you work in these monumental scales, there is a se- just a, a sense of power by the colossal nature of it the dominant sort of thing in the space, the relationship of the human form to this you know, scale that's much larger than us. But you also do smaller works that are more intimate in size, and I mean, I'm sure that that then also still has some relation to. The power of the viewer to the power of the relation of the work itself as well.
1: Yeah, the smaller pieces have a different feeling. Like the they're almost like scientific specimens. You know, like that we kind of kind of experience. You know, we walk around it. The imagery that I'd usually do for these smaller works would be often quite different. And sometimes I would actually do smaller works as kind of maquettes for the larger works. And there's definitely a different different sense to it, you know, when it encompasses your whole peripheral vision, you know, your entire field of view versus something that you have to kind of walk up to, there's certain intimacy. So it just depends on what I wanted to achieve. Uh, There's a series I did called Transparency Report, which were representations of bags that look like they're in x-ray, something we might see at the airport. So they're very intimate. They're quite small. They're like human scale, life size bags. But w- when we go up to them, we start to see like the the, the small little things inside. You know, you know, the hairbrush, and uh, one of them, and you, you can start to, to determine who this person is. So they be, so, sort of become like portraits of people, just through these possessions. Uh, but the broader theme of them is actually surveillance. Again state power it's another the bigger context you yeah, being surveillance is more important and so through even though these artworks are very small they've become about something much bigger they wouldn't actually work very well being huge installations i think that because they're small it functions better so i always decide which pieces should be small and which should be big depending on what the subject is and what I want people to get from it.
0: All right. I'm reminded when I look at your work of some of the, I think it's the newer work of Idris Khan. I'm always interested, like, do are, do people who work similarly know each other?
1: I don't know Idris.
0: You don't know Idris Khan. Okay, that's fascinating. No, no, that's good.
1: I've seen some of his works just online.
0: He did painting for a long time and he did photography for a while in his early career. But in the, about five years ago, he started doing layers of, of text on glass that were creating these very explosive looking things that have a, a strong similarity to some of your works. And so that's why I was just wondering if you're aware, because... I was because when I was in school, I remember making. I did this work that I I was so proud of. I was like, "Oh look, I came up with this really cool technique. It's really great. I love what it's doing." And my teacher just turns and goes, "Oh yeah, Robert Heineken did that in the 1960s." I'm like, "Fucking goddamn it! I thought I was being so imaginative and creative, and fucking somebody did it 40 years before me." So, I'm always interested about like what we, who we know about, and what influences us, or how we're connected
1: to things. I've seen. Mr. Can's work. Someone sent me the images of it. It's. I mean, he's doing something different. Just because it's with layers, you know, it's not something I, you know, can own. Let's say, but I'm interested to see what people do with layers. I mean, I think of it as a kind of a new form of thinking a new way of representing something. Which, you know, there's so many possibilities. People have used canvases for so long and you can't imagine one person that painted on a canvas originally and then saying hey you can't paint on a canvas you know that's like that's what i do just come to learn of the differences and it's i think that we'll see a future of layered work i'm excited to see that i i just hope that you know people have seen my contribution to, to that
0: just to be clear you were doing it as far as I can see on your CV prior to him doing the works on glass so you were first as far as I'm concerned
1: <laughs> My first layered artwork was actually in 1999 yeah no he
0: I his for the first layered piece I saw of his was like 2013 2014 something in that range so
1: there's been an interesting like history of people doing things in layers you know the more I've looked into it you know, learned that Robert Rauschenberg did a series on with lithographs, which were kind of interesting. But I, I actually didn't come across them until probably ten years ago. I'm really trying to push is kind of creating a, a new kind of way of thinking, like different this different than thinking in photography or drawing. It's like thinking of it as a space, thinking of it as kind of a new form of perspective. When you think of linear perspective, you know, that was an invention way back and, and people would represent depth through lines going to a horizon point like my mom taught me about. But this is like a different way of thinking. This is like working on picture planes, you know, the individual sheets, but through space animation, they've done that, you know, the, to create the sense of backgrounds. To kind of create, you know, a nice blurry background by positioning that image further back. Uh, we've seen layers in theater, you know, to create, let's say, an ocean look like it's moving with different layers of water. But I think it's, I think there's a lot more potential to it, and I'm hoping over my lifetime that I can really, really explore all the different ways to do things.
0: If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 42. Okay, I'm 47. That's good age. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: All right, um, finishing up. So I have these questions that I generally ask. So one is, are there three artists that you're looking at these days?
1: Honestly, I absolutely love my brother's work. My brother Ian, uh, he's a, uh, sorry, maybe just edit that part. <laughs> nope
0: nope leaving that in <laughs>
1: <laughs> so my brother he is I think he's the best portrait artist in the 3d world for digital portraiture he's really become one of the pioneers he's absolutely made the most groundbreaking work and you know he's just done recently a portrait of me which it's so so realistic that most people just when they see it, they dismiss it as just a photograph, but this is a fully three-dimensional portrait in the the world of 3D, as often the special effects industry has been a big part of it. but primarily people when they would represent a face, they would you know have it like very static. but in coming from an art background wanted to make 3D portraiture like a field. He started making these portraits of our family hyper-realistic. Like you really wouldn't be able to tell that it's not a photograph you're looking at. But he's really like managed to create a, his own following. And I think for 3D portraiture, it's really quite groundbreaking. And we we discuss the implications of portraiture with technology and what you know as an art form. Me and my brother we discuss so many different ideas of art. He often helps me make my works, and anyway, he's definitely for me probably my favorite artist. You <laughs>
0: o- older or younger?
1: He's two years younger. Other artists that I really admire, I think I don't want to sound too cliché, but I love Oliver Elison's work. He's done some quite groundbreaking works on perception I've always admired the work of Anish Kapoor and James Terrell but I actually am interested also in lots of artists throughout history too
0: okay wait let me slow you down just to be clear I'm asking more contemporary
1: artists okay so I do like Olafur Elison as I mentioned and James Terrell is great his works color fields are quite powerful and yeah, Anish Kapoor, I, I really admire for the scale and the, you know, very kind of abstract, very much about the body. All right. There's many others too.
0: No, those are lovely. Those are all good ones and very relevant. I can see the influences in your work of those people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last question is just advice. You gave some advice, but sort of any, any additional advice that you want to give to the next generation?
1: I would always make art for yourself, you know, as an artist, foremost, and to to do something that you actually want to do, rather than what you expected to do, or what you think might make you look witty and intelligent to other people. It's important to always just do something that you love, because you might be doing it the rest of your life, and you want to look back and, you know, feel like that time had been worth spending time to be doing that. Fair enough.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to the entire episode. I appreciate it greatly. Now, what I, something I need from you is I need you to do go and do a review of some sort. It could be a star rating. It could be a written review. Anything you can do. What it does is it helps the algorithm about podcasts to say that this is a podcast that people are not only listening to, but they're reacting to and they're they're going that extra mile to actually give reviews about. And so that makes it so that we go higher in the rankings. Now, you might think, what does that have to do with you? Well, if we get higher in the rankings, then we will be able to get more listeners. If we get more listeners, we'll get better guests. We get better guests. You will learn more from this podcast. So, You taking a couple seconds and going and do that will end up being helpful, directly helpful to you as much as it is to us. So greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. This podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners, Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes and on our website, wisefoolpod.com.